Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of uh, New Books Network. I'm your host, Origno, and today we have as guest Professor Upal Chakraborty um, speaking on his book, Assembling the Local. Uh, Professor Chakraborty is an assistant professor in sociology at the Presidency University, Kolkata. His interests range over intellectual history, colonialism, political economy, agrarian studies, science studies, and governance. His doctoral work consisted of historical investigations into connections between political economy, science, agrarian governance, and regional property configurations in British India and Imperial Britain in the 19th century. In the book, he argues that the local needs to be understood as a conceptual formation, generating as concrete effects entanglements between spatializable locales and non-localizable spaces. Professor Chakraborty completed his PhD in history at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. He also has a BA and an MA in sociology before completing his PhD degree. Chakraborty's Assembling the Local engages with articulations of the local on multiple theoretical and empirical fronts, weaving them into a complex reflection on the problem of difference and a critical commentary on connections between political economy, agrarian property and governance. Chakraborty argues that the local should be reconceptualized as an abstract machine, central to the construction of the universal, namely the establishment of political economy as a form of governance in 19th century British India. On that note, uh, welcome Professor Chakraborty to today's episode. Thank you so much. And thank you for uh, proposing this discussion. It's a great opportunity. And I would love to talk about the book, about the gen- kind of development of the work. And now that um, some years uh, uh, some years have passed since the publication of the book and the completion of the project with which I had started as a postgraduate student, uh, I also have a nice uh, distance to... Uh, look at this work and uh, you know freely discuss it, uh, keeping in mind all its shortcomings, its possibilities, all its what what I think its specific uh, interventions. Thank you. That's yeah. That's that's really generous to to um, you know uh, help us get through look through the uh, different imaginings of the book um so should we start a little bit about your career trajectory and the way you went about conceptualizing um a critical study of liberalism uh, could you tell us a little bit about that uh well uh in formal terms i was a student of sociology but i uh was as a student of sociology i was always a bit disappointed with the um lack of history in sociology curriculum 
in uh, times when uh, I was a student, I could see um, sociology curriculum at all levels, regionally, nationally, quite devoid of engagements with history. Obviously, at that time as a student, I was not uh, you know, quite clear about the history of this problem itself, but uh, I certainly had uh, somewhat a discomfort um, and uh, generally reading uh, works in the social sciences, I could see that a lot of interesting work was happening in history as well. And there seemed to be no conversation with that body of works from within the disciplinary ambit of sociology. So that's what drew me to uh, a more kind of sustained engagement with history. I started taking up history courses in my MA days uh, at JNU. And uh, as I read uh, history, I Indian history, modern Indian history, I could see that um, I I developed an interest in agrarian history. And uh, as I developed an interest in agrarian history, um, why, uh, why did I develop this interest in the first place? Uh, one, it was quite evident that um, the, 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 the longest and perhaps widest engagement of colonialism was with land in South Asia. And, uh, and thinking in terms of um, thinking, thinking more contemporarily as well, um, agrarian politics, agrarian lives, uh, obviously agrarian economy uh, continued to play a very defining role in, um, in South Asian modern public spheres, but they seem to be receiving less attention, getting invisibilized, uh, the whole spatial sense of uh, the so-called rural-urban divide was changing fast, and there seemed to be, you know, uh, uh, an intellectual disappearance of uh, the, the, the rural scapes. So, uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, peasants were as important as ever in India's um, modernity and and uh, the connections between the kind of, um, you know, the kind of importance they had to begin with uh, when colonialism formally inaugurated itself the connections between that past and uh, the contemporary was no longer being explored. And that kind of interested me. And I went into studying agrarian history and I quickly discovered that um, in terms of modern Indian history, uh, agrarian history used to reign at one point in time. Uh, it was somewhat of, uh, somewhat the, the defining uh, lens to study colonialism. At one point of time, all historians were agrarian historians. All historians were doing economic history and they started their economic history from agrarian history in 
case of modern India. But then the, again, even within historiography, there seemed to be a complete disappearance of agrarian history. So taking these, uh, you know, uh, conditions together, uh, I developed an interest in agrarian history. And my to come back to your question, my uh, engagement with liberalism begun as an agrarian historian. And that was quite an immense task. I quickly understood that the, you know, that the that the kind of work that has been done that had uh, that had been done in India's agrarian history, and in very many ways the ways in very many ways uh, uh, the engagement with liberalism that that body of works had produced was immense, even if they were not always very self-conscious about their engagements with liberalism as later readers of liberalism uh, the entire body of uh, agrarian historiography was an immense storehouse to learn uh, about the workings of colonial liberalism so my forays into colonial liberalism began as an agrarian historian and i was not really sure when I began this work, that this interest in agrarian history will take me to an intellectual history of political economy, as in whether, as in that I would do my agrarian history in that way was not evident at that point in time, because there were so many different routes that one could take as an agrarian historian. Uh, the older ones, the newer ones, be it the earlier varieties of economic histories from the you know from the, uh, the uh, from the statistical uh, to the you know uh, to to even more micro histories based on simply village data from that kind of uh, uh, approach to agrarian history to even the more when i was a student the turns towards cultural history and that could also take one to agrarian history in a different way exploring you know uh, other kinds of archives uh, thinking um, you know more ethnographically about agrarian history thinking even more phenomenologically about agrarian history i was not sure at that time what route would be my route uh, but as I, and it was also very difficult, I thought as a student moving into uh, historical works, as a student of sociology moving into historical work, and then choosing agrarian history as the kind of historical work I would want to do, it was very difficult for me to even first, you know, get at the basics of this, this field to read up the literature, to get familiar with the terms, to make a sense of the archive. It was a, and, and I was someone in my generation, people were moving out of the older government state archives kind of repositories to everything else, be they you know, autobiographies, memoirs, narratives of personal lives, oral histories, ethnographically informed histories, uh, an entire different range of 
historical evidence is being um, explored. And um, there were fewer people in the uh, reading rooms of uh, government archives. And I could see my beginning, I, I, I could see that I have, I have to begin from government archives. And government archives were, uh, it, that was also again an obstacle for me to understand the, uh, simply the logic of classification of departments to begin with. So these were several kinds of obstacles uh, that I, 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 I encountered as I chose to do agrarian history and read liberalism in terms of the thickness of the agrarian history data. And obviously, as, uh, as a student moving between sociology and history, I had also had my usual training in critical theory and a whole kind of reassessment of what to be considered as historical data in the first place. I had gone through the historiographic debates, the usual ones, you know, and gone through all the major uh, twists and turns in historical theory in European history. And um, at the same time, uh, dabbled in uh, structuralist, post-structuralist thinking. And having done all of that, I knew I my, my choice of the field would take me to uh, state archives, to government documents. And uh, I would have to use them uh, to think through my project. So, so this is how my engagement with liberalism began. Conceptually, yes, I had a keen interest in studying liberalism, colonial modernity. Uh, methodologically, my choice of the choice of my, you know, of my field, agrarian history, um, pushed me into uh, kinds of historical evidence and uh, protocols of uh, reading that evidence, which were not really uh, at ease with the kinds of critical interpretive techniques that I had kind of imbibed from my training in critical theory. And there were no agrarian historians because they were a lost generation at that time. There were no agrarian historians who, who, who did critical theory with their village level records. So there was no real demonstration also in front of me to know how to read liberalism with the kinds of sources that an earlier generation used, yet introduce a different kind of reading technique into those sources and also choose therefore which uh, form of history would uh, help me do this most effortlessly. Certainly, That's, that is a really, uh, it, it is a complex web that you have navigated. And I was, uh, I was wondering something about something you mentioned that you were looking for the agrarian and then you 
walked into the intellectual and that is something your book constantly warns us to not search for the pristine the communitarian agrarian because it the construction of the total totalizing discourse of the intellectual kind of uh, always subsumes or uh, produces the agrarian as this object of inquiry, as scientific, epistemological, whichever you may. But I'm uh, that is a really nice way to think about that the, how the agrarian to intellectual, and I I agree with with the dearth of uh, critical theoretical analysis, uh, and there has been some a lot of people recently talking about this kind of move. But um, where I'm I'm assuming when you started out, this wasn't kind of the convention uh on that note i do think this is a this is an opportune moment to walk us a little through uh through these interlocu interlocutors of liberalism so uh as as a as somebody starting out in their careers we think of rule of property we think of stokes and then there's sartori and you have engaged, and then there's, of course, uh, Montana. So there are different people across different schools, traditions, and you've mentioned you're navigating. So how would you locate yourself within this uh, web, within this this kind of matrix of uh, critical studies on liberalism? Right, yeah. <clears throat> well, the names you mentioned are obviously all there uh, in the book as uh, as kind of the first line of interlocutors. Uh, so they've all influenced me in thinking. But uh, to be honest, when I started this work and what I, uh, I realized that even when I was kind of wrapping up my thesis, when I started this work, I did not have the uh, sense of the organizing principle of this work. But as I was submitting the thesis, that sense was gradually dawning on me. And very interestingly, the book that, you know, continued to be uh, a source of, um, a source of kind of, uh, a source of irritation, I would say, uh, was Eric Stokes's English Utilitarians in India. Irritation a very productive one because right from the beginning I was compelled by the book and not wanting to agree with it. So this state of the book being you know persuasive but at the same time also so potent that it opens up the possibilities reading it opens up you know the possibility of of revising it. <clears throat> So uh, Stokes was there throughout, and uh, I would say my uh, my greatest intellectual intellectual interlocutor in that project remains Stokes. Of course, the next generation of people uh, 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 that you mentioned, especially Sartori and Mantena, they have been very important, formidable influences. On the work, uh, but uh, you know, uh, by the time I start reading their works, I could see my ideas have taken some shape, and they are somewhat uh, on the same plane in terms of 
you know, uh, a shared interest in in writing an intellectual history of agrarian uh, of the agrarian world uh, that existed. I perceived between me, Andrew, and Karuna. But with Stokes, it was, you know, uh, it was uh, the kind of a, a point of beginning, and 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 uh, and something to which I would always return. So that's the status of uh, these uh, interlocutors that you mentioned, and uh, then you know more substantially, I would say that um, <clears throat> uh, first thing is that. I was not doing something that uh, I was not doing uh, do, doing the kind of work that Ranajit Guha did. That 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 was quite obviously that book is very important, and I was uh, kind of uh, as attracted to that book as uh, uh, that of Stokes. But I also knew right from the beginning that I wanted to work with village level data, <clears throat> and uh, that's what. The Stokes kind of work uh, offers as a space, but uh, Guha was uh, Guha's rule of property was uh, entirely pitched at 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 a, at a different level of the uh, imperial apparatus, uh, and 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 because Stokes's work, although I now know that English utilitarians in India did, does not really work with the kind of village level data that I have worked with, but Stokes's work seemed to uh, make me think that, you know, there are these different levels of the uh, imperial apparatus and uh, one has to be able to make a generate a possible you know, uh, conversation between all these levels. If, uh, you know, one has to uh, write an intellectual history of uh, the agrarian world, because uh, the, the kinds of, uh, the kinds of ideas that uh, made that agrarian world were in practice at all these levels, one has to be able to trace very subtly the articulations and their kind of um, their their connections uh, between these levels. That's what Stokes's work um, suggested. Now, then, when when one looks at Karuna's work, then uh, in terms of taking up these levels. Karuna, I would say, is closer to the kind of work that uh, that Rajit Gore did of uh, taking up a level which is quite decidedly uh, imperial. Uh, of course, it has immense ramifications for uh, the village. Doesn't mean that you know uh, the the significance of that level has to be understood from within that level only. But nevertheless, Karuna's work uh, uh, discusses that level, brings out the significance of that level in a in a very innovative way, which has which had not been earlier, you know, uh, 
thought about, uh, especially the way she talks about mm, she talks about the so-called practical turn of the empire and how the so-called practical turn of the empire should be read as yet another turn within uh, the quote-unquote theory of liberalism. Uh, that is a very powerful intervention. That's where uh, you know my ideas resonated with hers. But in terms of the level that I was talking about, Stokes, uh, uh, Guha, and Antena come close to each other. With reference to, again, Andrew's uh, second book, Liberalism uh, in Empire, uh, he... Uh, he is, I think, given uh, given his you know uh, philosophical uh, position, he is interested in in tying up all these levels that I am uh, I I was exploring, um, and mm, he obviously is making an intervention which is very new in my understanding because he's trying to bring a material history and an intellectual history together, which is not what I do in my book. And uh, that's, 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 uh, that's very clear and very clearly stated in the book as well. But uh, the way he brings up uh, the intellectual history problems and the way he places them uh, at the heart of all these levels is something that I learned from. And that's where I connect with him. So in my sense, therefore, my, uh, my, my kind of intellectual history, which is decidedly as stated and explained in the book as well, which is decidedly inspired by, uh, you know, uh, by Foucault's early and later works, both in different ways. Uh, my kind of intellectual history uh, wants to look at uh, practices as ideas at all levels, and that's why I'm keen on you know uh, on exploring um, uh, the village data as closely as possible as uh, the you know voluminous treatises on political economy produced from the metropole. And I do think that, you know, these two very differently situated and uh, different kind of um, articulations can be brought together in terms of um, the practices they produce and how the ideas that I'm tracing are working in these practices. So that is why my kind of intellectual history or my interest in intellectual history was always something which was trying to um, question an unusual opposition between theory and practice, between, you know, metropole and colony, between, uh, you know, between elite and subaltern, uh, between uh, you know bottom and top uh, for that matter and uh, I was looking at at uh, at intellectual history from this perspective of 
of you know of of practices which abound and still can be made sense of in terms of ideas and their rearticulations certainly um i think this is this is a moment where uh, where we can shift a little bit to the levels that you mentioned that you mentioned in the book and um you know talk a little bit about the you know the the scale of the village data to as you mentioned the bottom and the top and there's constant dialogue uh so could you would you tell us a little bit about these this move and that you re reiterate constantly that's as practices as ideas so what were these multifarious practices across different sites that that kind of produces the idea of the local um how did you come about looking at the at the practices looking at the village data what does it do to to this to your argument um uh, <clears throat> actually uh i would say that the you know the practices that i was looking at uh can be termed somewhat as practices of knowing practices of governing and practices of living uh, and uh, how there is a kind of traffic between knowing governing and living is what i was trying to make sense of um when i say living of course it immediately uh it raises the question that whether knowing governing uh are the kind of defining principles of living as idea uh as ideas but in my work certainly that's that's what i could do i and i was not i thought it was it was not possible for me to for me to uh integrate uh the other ways in which one could think of living uh beyond along with knowing and governing so i was focusing on um living as knowing and governing that was the analytic for me and uh, so the practices uh, that i was looking at um could be kind of the variety could be kind of rethought as uh, as as moving around uh, questions of knowing governing and living and this is true as i see it in the book for each of the levels that i explore so it's not that there is an implicit hierarchy between knowing governing and living and that hierarchy corresponds to spatial levels or social levels so it's not as if you know there are some people located in a certain kind of space who are involved in practices of knowing whereas there are some others located in another kind of space who are invo involved in practices of governing whereas there are others in you know other kinds of social groups in some other kinds of space who are invested in practices of living and these spaces and these groups are hierarchically or arranged with respect to each other that is not what i am trying to do in the book for me 
the knowing governing living uh, exchanges are as valid for the kind of intellectual debates on method and science that were taking place in the metropole in Britain as they are for the peasants in Katak who are, you know, uh, petitioning the district magistrate about claims to land, claims to rent, about uh, about property itself. And in these petitions, the way they are making these claims, the, the thoughts that are involved in those claims are also equally about knowing, governing, and living. Just as when there is a raging debate in British periodicals between different kinds of you know, uh, scholars on the question of the appropriate method of doing science, those debates too, in my opinion, are practices of knowing, governing, and living. So in that sense, uh, the practices that I deal with in the book are situated across levels like these debates in Britain over questions of method and science and political economies implicated in these debates, in these debates. Then the other level is the whole inter-regional imperial bureaucratic apparatus in British India, which is constantly having a bureaucratic conversation on questions of uh, agrarian living between themselves, cross-regionally, east, south, northwest. And then there's another level of a specific locality on the eastern uh, side of British India, where different kinds of peasants are staking claims, making arguments, constructing categories, using concepts to present issues related to land. Property is the defining idea, but then how they are thinking about property is also leading to their engagements with other concepts, related ones like rent, like the village itself, like being peasant. Uh, so these are the practices at various levels, which I am interested in. And uh, each of these sets of practices uh, are, as I said, about thinking, governing, and living, and they are connected to each other. Yeah, that's a really helpful way uh, to get into some of the dense ideas in the book. And it's, a, it's also very rewarding to look at the scale of practices in, in producing this kind of knowledge. Um, I I wonder if these different levels of, you know, I, that you say knowing, governing, living, the kind of totalizing discourse they, they kind of keep producing, um, how does the how does the analytical category of local feature in this kind of production or or uh, development of this nexus 
where does the local come in yeah um so the thing is so what struck me when i picked this category up from my uh my engagements with my sources which developed over time uh what struck me about this category is that uh the the spatial scale it ordinarily refers to the idea of the local is something that had been that had been kind of uh, accepted as an objective spatial scale somewhat corresponding to uh, a living reality out there in a very positivist way by uh historians who have uh, who have used this category very centrally in their works an earlier generation of agrarian historians who were quite positivist about their methods but also you know even later uh, with uh, revisions of those histories and their those positivisms um and the the development of newer scales of thinking uh moving out of the national for example uh to the transnational or to the global or to the connected so on and so forth this seemed to be you know a critical reassessment of all scales except the local and that seemed to have a function that seemed to have a reason why there was no critical reassessment of the local uh, it seemed that the local was there, there was a political function to the absence of this critical reassessment it seemed that in all these changes and turns of historiography the local was providing us kind of uh, a kind of ready made mm, uh, a, a ready made uh, space for uh, for for a critique a critique of uh, of of imperialism of nationalism of regionalism of any for that matter quote unquote grand narrative now the idea of the fragment against the grand narrative the idea of the limit of the grand narratives the idea of resistance to totalization all seem to coalesce and come together into this black box of the local and which is why it was it seemed that it, it was it was useful to keep that category bereft of any critical scrutiny so in this manner even in the most critical of histories i could see a certain crypto positivism or a positivism you know returning from the back door in the use of the local there it seemed to be a very easy acceptance of the local as an objectively given uh reality so this is where i became a bit wary of the local and picked it up as a category of critical critical scrutiny also because i could see that just as much the critical historians are are celebrating the local the colonial government too seems to be very uh seems to be seemed to be uh seem to be much involved with the idea of the local and uh in colonial discourse too it seemed that the local had this you know had this function of 
of indicating um, a sort of uh, a sort of end or limit or uh, or stumbling block of the grand colonial mission. So these two mirroring yet very different, apparently opposed sets of uh, uses of the local uh, in critical historiography, in colonial governance, both sides taking the local uh, self-evidently in terms of its uh, scale and in terms of uh, as if there was some there was there was something inherent in that scale inherent in that scale which which could uh, which could block the grip of other scales there seems there seemed to be something uh, innate in the local which had the capacity to resist the imperial, the global, the national, the regional, the transnational, etc. So there was a conflation here of scale and, uh, you know, of, of scale and quality, which was, which was not taken up as an object of analysis. It was accepted as it were. <clears throat> and of course, there was a great deal of romance here about the, uh, you know, about the critical capacity of the local. So that's how I began with the local. I thought that this too needed to be unpacked. It seemed to be a frontier of, you know, of all, uh, all dominance. And uh, it seemed to be that outside, which is taken for granted. So that's how I started. And as I started, I could see that the local is not, surely not uh, an objective scale. It, it, it has, a, it, it, is, it is a spatial metaphor and it has the capacity to be used in all kinds of spaces in all kinds of scales. So even the imperial conversation about the whole world was using the local as a scale to produce the kind of universal frame that it wants to produce about the world. The inter-regional space of agrarian governance was constantly using the local as a scale to explain a region. Then the peasant too was using the local as a scale to talk about, let's say, the specificity of his village and mark it off from some other village. So everyone was using the local as a scale at these various at these various scales in these different spaces. So there was a local in the imperial, there was a local in the interregional, there was a local in the locality, and each of these locals were arranged, were being arranged in terms of certain concepts which have which have been assembled across these scales so in that sense what i could see clearly that the local had a spatializing capacity but that spatializing capacity did not really correspond or fit with any fixed objectively given physical locale 
or bound space, bounded space. So this, this, this kind of intrigued me that it has a scalar capacity, but it operates kind of in a spacelessness, in a condition of spacelessness. So this is this is how you know the uh, the in the book the local is thought, and this is how uh, it I see it in operation across these spaces. Yeah, that's that's a very that's really um, that provides a lot of clarity on on the spacelessness of the local, and I really like like the way you frame it, but I. I want to say that this local is not just spaceless. The local is also producing uh, relations of power. Local is also the space where uh, these, you know, the kinds of practices that you mentioned are crystallizing. And the local is also a place where identities and hierarchies are created and flattened. So in the specifics, like if, as we get into the specifics we in your book from you know across a chapter how would you characterize the the way it the local kind of enables disables crystallizes flattens a range of practices ideas and identities yes uh, yes uh, well uh, the what i meant by uh, spacelessness is uh, the 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 lack of a, a a definite correspondence between a particular space and the working of the local as you point out very correctly that if you if you think about the local's ability to produce a social space which is striated which is graded which is you know which is stratified which is hierarchized then precisely at each of these levels, the local is invested in that work. So, if we think of, mm, if we think of the metropolitan imperial uh, debates, then the then the local is uh, it's 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 working to produce, let's say, certain relations between forms of knowledge, types of method, and the arrangement of master concepts within particular forms of knowledge. And the relations of power here are uh, working in terms of, let's say, uh, let's say, the organization of knowledge itself. So, so in the debates that I trace, there is this whole question of the Ricardian framework being questioned. In the questioning, uh, a certain idea of science being put up. And in this idea, a certain capacity of uh, the inductive scientific method is being projected, which, which has which has as its task the production of differentiations. So if we look at William Hill's uh, uh, works on the history and philosophy of the inductive sciences, two different works, they have clearly as their task a constant, um, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, they have as their tasks a clear focus on finding principles which can constantly differentiate between forms of knowledge, between their uh, their particular methods of inquiry and their specific uh, concepts, organizing concepts. Yet, you know, within these differentiations, again, a hierarchy between these differentiations and then using these differentiations to talk about, let's say, a grand vision. So this is at one level, the kind of, you know, uh, segregation, stratifications, that are being done by the local in this in within these spaces and uh, there are relations of power at work in 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 these processes the same uh, is true for the uh, sites of british indian interregional governance there too a conversation is going on which has which had started from the time of the permanent settlement about understanding India's property scape, rural property scape, and uh, that conversation is is a is a whole kind of box of classifications and the arrangement of uh, those classifications in terms of certain hierarchies, and these hierarchies and classifications are about uh, agrarian figures and their relations with land. Then if we come to the level of the locality, here too, we see that you know, each peasant is classifying himself into certain types and you know, di differentiating himself from other types and constantly trying to you know, enter into different kinds of power relations uh, with respect to others in that topography of types. Uh, so, of course, at each of these levels, the local is also working to produce hierarchies, establish differences, uh, generate relationships, uh, and uh, in a way such that this whole uh, classificatory principle is in motion. It it doesn't produce, you know, stagnant and frozen uh, configurations of of power, of uh, ideas. As I try to trace, the book is uh, looking at a short period of around sixty years, roughly. But as I try to show that even within these sixty years. The classificatory principles are quite uh, dynamic in the sense that they are always opening up to newer configurations and newer modes of power. Of course, with some time, it's not as if that this dynamism is, you know, is 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 very fast and very quick. But certainly, the way in which the classifications are done they lend themselves to openings and these openings are helpful as much for the philosopher of science as they are for the you know for the peasant in the in the locality <clears throat> so this is 
my kind of response to your question yeah definitely that's that's exactly what what we were kind of we were wondering and and how it it develops i also want to alert to the to the re, to the audience that just as you speak about the local uh creating and and then flattening and then producing all these different relations um the local is uh, uh this is a project of assembling and i found that really interesting that there are where the discourse of uh political economy and the discourse of local governance kind of it's not an organic relation it's an it's a project of assembling and that's it's a project of assembling of of something that uh, assembling of knowledge and it's producing the knowledge that produces comes out of this moment of assembling which i found was very interesting um i think we may have space for two more questions so the first of the two is to think of the limits and i'm i'm really curious of the way you frame that the limit of this of the property sovereignty nexus of the totalizing discourse the local itself becomes the limit it's a product it's produced and of course because of the paradox it becomes a limit could you tell us a little more of this formulation i thought it was really unique so uh, what i realized as i was kind of thinking through the whole problem more for the book uh, after the writing of the dissertation um what i realized is uh, that uh, you know uh, that one that uh, the the working of the local is dynamic so it's opening up to newer configurations so that itself shows the uh, the the function of limits in within this principle that uh, it's 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 self limiting in a way that it opens up so the principle is such that its limits are are kind of woven within its operations so there are no limitations to the movement of this frame and one of the you know one of the most persuasive indication that i found in the records themselves um which resonates with this with the way i'm thinking about this problem was the you know what i would call you know reflexive nature of governance uh because i saw that that uh time and again uh in governance in british india there was an attempt to look back at let's say the past 10 years policy and this uh, reflexivity uh made me think about the practice of governance itself and uh, that again uh, helped me think about uh, the question of limit for govern governance where does governance uh, let's say uh, where does governance uh, agree to let's say close itself in a way and open itself up in another way by closure allowing openings this is a form of limit which is productive it will lead to newer openings so this i could see happening at various levels where there was a flexibility 
And this flexibility was evident, not only in governmental configurations, in governmental practices, but also in, let's say, uh, let's say in the assembling of frames uh, of knowledge uh, of, of, let's say, frames of uh, disciplinary knowledge of uh, methodological principles in the debates of the metropolis. This flexibility was evident in the way uh, the peasants were articulating their own cases vis-a-vis -vis other agrarian groups. So there was no fixed enemy of the peasant in a certain sense. It could change. It could change from the you know, government to the Sadar Zamindar, to the Mufassal Zamindar, to the village level uh, land controllers having these different titles in these uh, in in the particular locality I looked at, let's say uh, Sarbarakars and Pudhans and Mukaddams, to even let's say uh, the peasant next door. So this this flexibility in the entire space that I'm looking at, at its various levels, I think this flexibility is what uh, is, is the lens with which I thought about limits to the frame. This question of uh, uh, how totalizing is the local, what are the limits to this frame? So I, I thought that the frame is uh, working in such a way that it wants to limit itself and in the process break limitations on itself up. So that is how I thought about limits, that it's something, uh, it's something uh, integrated within the workings of the frame. Yeah, that is, that is a really, it's a, it's a counterintuitive move and uh it's a, it it turns out quite cynical to hear but it's also extremely productive as a as a thread in the book uh i believe we have to wrap up the conversation here so i would like to ask uh, one final question before we end and that that kind of uh, continues from the book and your future projects and you mention uh somewhere that you're working continue you're continuing to work through these economies of scale and your next project kind of fits into and speaks to what you work. So could you tell us of uh, about how you're thinking about what your next work is going to be and where, where that's going? So uh, my next work, basically uh, the way I'm looking at it now, I'm in the middle of it, uh, yet also kind of beginning to think through uh, the conceptual problems uh, that uh, would guide me in this work. Um, so I was doing, I was building an archive for uh, the Hindu and subsequently Presidency College, which was the first institution of Western education in India. It started off as, uh, you know, as a, as an, as an, as an act of uh, of of as as a as a civil movement by uh, 
by different kinds of natives interested in Western education in Kolkata in 1817. And then gradually over time, uh, it was taken over by the government. It became the leading government college of the Bengal presidency, the capital of uh, the British Empire at that time and continued its life till 2010 when it became an university. So this institution has a very interesting history in terms of uh, the intellectual work that has been done in this institution over, let's say, uh, almost two centuries of its existence. And uh, uh, the kinds of you know, uh, uh, footprints of that intellectual work uh, all over the world uh, that exists. Uh, so I was involved with the British Library and the University of Chicago uh, in building an archive of uh, the records of this institution. And in the process, I got interested in, uh, I would say, institutional history of education, very broadly put. And uh, from there, I could see uh, I could see uh, somewhat a sketch of uh, a history of um, the university form in uh, in India. And for that, I think I would be looking at the educational visions and the intellectual work of different institutions which uh, which had an university form in uh, British India. And these institutions might range from colleges to technical institutes, colleges of general learning, let's say liberal education, to technical institutes of, let's say, medical and engineering uh, courses, to uh, the more uh, formally defined university, like the Calcutta, Madras, or the Bombay universities. But I'm trying to think of, let's say, an ensemble of institutions and look at the intellectual work and educational visions of this institution to think of the idea of an university form emerging in this part of the world. And here is where uh, I think my engagement with scale will continue to inform this work, where I'll try to think how, let's say, plumbing the depths of individual institutions and looking at, let's say, the micro practices of institutional life and intellectual work in these institutions can enable us to think of uh, a global category like the university. So what's the relationship between the, uh, you know, uh, the, the micro history of institutions and, let's say, the conceptual history of categories like universities yeah that sounds that sounds really fascinating and i i believe a lot of us would look forward to thinking more through such categories and and uh, looking at newer global histories on that note i would uh, like to thank uh, professor chakraborty for your time and uh, yeah, you know walking us through the layers of your argument in the book uh, thank you so much. It was it was really wonderful to talk to you, Professor Chakravarti. Thank you so much, Aurigno. It was wonderful, a pleasure for me to discuss these ideas. Of course, each discussion helps in thinking about the same ideas in new ways. So 
all depends on the kinds of questions that are put in front of, uh, you know, a, a conjecture and the kind of interpretive work that I do in this book with the kinds of records that were used by a generation of historians in a very different way, I think still makes my thoughts somewhat conjectural in a certain sense. So those conjectures are 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 better clarified and and they offered the potential to be rethought uh, in such conversations. So thank you for that. It it helped me a lot as well. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad. Thank you for struggling with it.